The Social Security Administration recently established an office for helping Native Americans. The agency, in its words, wants to elevate and centralize efforts devoted to tribal members and Alaska Natives. For details, we turn to the director of the Office of Native American Partnerships, Richard Litzy. Mr. Litzy, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. First of all, what is the relationship between Native tribes, Native American tribes, Alaska Natives, and Social Security? The issue why I'm having to, why we have this office set up, is because, unfortunately, for a lot of different reasons, and I hope we can discuss that today, they don't always take advantage of the benefits, or they may not be aware of the benefits. The point of my job is to enhance that relationship with tribes and Social Security Administration, and bring the information to them and listen to them as well. But education is, is the key to the job, is informing them that the, these these benefits do exist, and rightfully they can take advantage of if they qualify. Yeah, and I'd like to get into why they don't take advantage, but how many people might be involved here? Indian country is made up of about 2.9% of the U.S. population, and there's 574 federally recognized tribes in 35 states. So we're small, but we're spread out over the whole United States, and that's what makes the job challenging. Potentially, though, you're still talking about millions of people. Yes, correct. Almost three million. And what are the issues with Native Americans and Alaska Natives when it comes to knowledge of or simply taking advantage of privileges and rights that every other American has along with them? Well, for one thing, what we call Indian country, Indian country is made up of folks all over the United States, as I've mentioned, 35 states, but also in cities and on reservations. A lot of these reservations are in in very isolated, remote areas, and getting the word out to them through our normal means of of communication, for instance, broadband and internet, just doesn't exist. And also there may not be Social Security walk-in offices, which still exist in a lot of places, but may not be in these remote areas. That's correct. I mean, in some cases, uh, in fact, we have an office in New York. It takes some tribal members eight hours to get there, round trip to get there. And in California, there's a field office that it takes four hours one way, and they have to go over mountains to get there with weather and all the rest of it, that, that makes it quite uh, difficult for them to do and, and actually take sometimes actually take advantage of the benefits. Talking about the services themselves, aside from the basic old age insurance, Social Security that is sure. kind of the universal thing, Social Security has many survivor benefits programs, disability programs, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Is that basically what your issue is, is their ability to access some of those programs that Social Security has that are quite large but are outside of the standard old age insurance? Yes, sir. That's exactly right. We have many different types of benefits. Some of them are kind of uh, Native American-centric, so we're, and unfortunately, not all tribes know about it, and that's part of my job is to get out and uh, deliver that service to them and let them become aware. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's a tribal member. He and I are, are good friends. We keep in contact. He lives out of state. And uh, one conversation, he, he mentioned he'd injured himself and he was in a wheelchair and all that. And I said, well, what are you, what are you doing? He says, well, I, I applied for disability. I said, well, good, good. I said, uh, how's that going? He says, well, I guess I'm not disabled. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they turned me down. I said, okay, and what did you do next? He says, Nothing. Now, we're talking about an educated man who worked in tribal councils and held responsible positions. And it says quite clearly on what we're, what's called the initial determination for disability. It says quite clearly that you have X number of days to 
appeal this decision. Well, now I'm on the phone talking to him like an employee of the Social Security Administration, and I hadn't really gone to work yet, but I'm back here again. Sure. But I I told him, I said, hey, the next step is a notice of reconsideration, a a reconsideration level, and if they turn you down there, you you may be able to get a, a hearing before an administrative law judge, and if you truly believe you're disabled and you can't do your normal work, you need to keep applying. You need to keep uh, appealing. Well, he didn't know that. He didn't. He didn't realize that. And I said, "Listen, up till now, up till now, everything that you've been doing has been with Social Security Administration has been on paper. If you have to go to a hearing, you can be in front of an administrative law judge for the first time. Someone's going to see you face to face and see your medical record." See how much difficulty you have getting up and getting down from the table in the hearing office. You might be there in your wheelchair. There might be any number of things that can limit your ability to do your job as, uh, that you used to have. He said, well, I'm glad that you told me that, and I'll, I'll look further into that. So there, there we are. We're speaking with Richard Litzy. He is the director of the Office of Native American Partnerships at the Social Security Administration. What is your strategy then for getting the word out to the tribes and to the Alaska Natives? Number one is going to be outreach, increase the outreach to tribal communities here in an Indian country. Uh, I'll be attending conferences, roundtable discussions, listening sessions, and trying to get the uh, the feedback from the tribal folks I speak with. We'll also strengthening tribal consultation, which uh, are backed by executive orders from the Clinton administration and from the Biden administration that we have put together as a result of one of those uh, executive orders. We put together a tribal action plan that that uh, kind of outlines what we're going to do, like going out into Indian country and uh, improve service delivery and actually promote hiring through the tribal colleges and universities and um, get this office that stood up and so we could establish support for tribal affairs. And what about notifying people by old-fashioned mail? Because the Postal Service still goes to those places, even if broadband does not. They do. Uh, there is a problem with that, though, in Indian country. You know, we're talking about developing world-type situations in a lot of times. Not always. And there's never an always here. But because of housing issues are also a poor housing conditions on reservations, you may have multiple families living in one home. And it's difficult. To, we don't even know where they are. So it's difficult for us to even communicate with them snail mail. So this will be in large part a personal touch type of initiative. It is, but we have, uh, the good thing is we do have all these offices all over the United States, Social Security offices, and uh, I plan to utilize a lot of those offices to do the work that I can't get down there on, you know, boots on the ground type thing. I will do as much as I can to, and and it was put to me when when I accepted this job, that a lot of travel is involved, and I will do that, and generally there'll be strategic travel in the sense that if there's a large conference that I can reach many, many people or maybe even tribal officials there, then those are the types of places that I'll go so I can get the word out. It strikes me you could almost put a Social Security office in an Airstream or something and go from place to place that way. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you supply it, I'll go. <laughs> this, All right. I have to tell you, Tom, this is, this is my passion. I have to tell you, I was five years into retirement when I heard about this job. I, I applied, didn't think, I didn't know if I'd get it or not, you know, but I applied because I thought I cannot let this job go and regret some years later that I never applied for it. Well, by some miracle, I was, I was appointed and I'm 
in the job now. It's, it's a, a passion to me. It's something I enjoy doing. It's work that I did when I was working on the uh, Senate Finance Committee with Senator Baucus. He was a senator from uh, Montana and became our ambassador to China. We carved out a special niche for me on the Finance Committee, and I visited all the reservations of Montana. We had seven, uh, seven reservations in Montana. Not only that, but uh, the word got out. Any country is small, but the word spreads quickly. And next thing I know, I'm speaking all over the United States to large groups of people. And that's what I plan to do in this job. And I enjoyed it tremendously. Yeah, you kind of beat me to the question there. But you do have a background in this, and you also have tribal associations personally, correct? That's correct. I'm a, I'm a tribal citizen of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma. I'm enrolled there. My father was full-blood American Indian, and he grew up there, and, and uh, he was also in the military, and we traveled all over the United States. I was an Air Force brat for 17 years, so I've been all over the country and Japan, and uh, but my, my travel headquarters is in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. And let me ask you this. Is there a issue with establishing trust with the tribes? Here I am from the federal government. That's not such a great history in all cases. Exactly. The history between the United States government and the American Indian tribes has, has uh, been woefully bad, frankly. Even for me to go into representing Social Security Administration, I, I will have to prove myself, and, and I have a history with Indian country, but I'll have to prove myself that, they, that I'm trustworthy. And because there is a general lack of trust with American Indians and Alaska Natives, it's unfortunate, but that's given the history, as you said, no one is surprised by that. We've been promised much and given little. Richard Litzy is director of the Office of Native American Partnerships at the Social Security Administration. Good luck in this task, and thanks for joining me. Oh, you're more than welcome. If there's anything else I can do to help uh, clarify some of this, please let me know. I'll be willing to come back on your program. All right. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.